Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. Alex, who have we got on today? I'm very excited today. Today we have with us Nick Kaiser, who's a historian, author, and high school teacher. Uh, he's currently in Canada, aren't you, Nick? Yes, in Canada. How is lockdown there? How are you? It's Well, I'm in a very rural part of Canada, so there are virtually no cases here. I can't complain. Parks are open, so it's pretty nice. Excellent. Um, and you're here today to talk to us about the War of 1812, because one of our... Um, viewers, listeners, uh, commented on Twitter that we had completely neglected this war so far, and we said, okay then. Uh, so you're going to do some stuff for the British side for us, and then we're going to be talking to someone about the American side as well, um, and probably laughing about the whole White House dinner incident. Um, but you're here to talk to us about the Navy today, aren't you? Um, yeah. This okay. Navy sees themselves as pretty invincible, don't they? This is less than a decade after Trafalgar. Talk to us about this perceived invincibility of the Royal Navy um, after two decades of near constant victory at sea. Yeah, well, so in the, in the 18th century in general, the British had kind of been rivals for naval dominance of France, maybe with Spain, the Dutch. And then in the Napoleonic Wars, the French Revolutionary Wars, they essentially, they see unprecedented level of success. Uh, there are been seven or eight major battles in that time, all of them British victories. Uh, the few hundred minor battles, the vast majority of British victories... And there are around probably 60, 70 actions between, uh, with one ship on each side, single ship actions. And again, they're almost all British victories. It's, it's a, I, I can't find any other incident in history where you see such a steady stream of victories of one, like, military organization over the rest. So what that means is, uh, as this period goes on, as, uh, victories at the Nile and Trafalgar happen, Everyone kind of seems to expect, yeah, the Royal Navy is just going to be winning. That's just the natural expectation. So tell us about the War of 1812 and how it actually came about. Yeah, so it came about uh, two decades into the Napoleonic era, into the Napoleonic Wars. Uh, this was a few decades after independence. And, you know, they, Britain and America have been at peace for a few decades now. But Britain still didn't really see America as... As, as they said, a civilized nation. They kind of thought it was somehow lesser, not quite legitimate. And so as Britain was engaged in this titanic struggle against the French, they kind of just viewed the Americans as a pesky annoyance. So they would frequently seize American ships that were trying to trade with the French, seize their cargo. They would frequently try to impress American sailors. 
This is a huge point of contention with uh, the impressment. So impressment is when the British actually seize sailors from merchant ships or from ports and conscript them into the Royal Navy. Now, uh, the British tended to view citizenship as sort of a, a permanent thing. So if you were born a British subject, you were always a British subject. Even if you moved to America, even if you became American citizen, the British still saw these individuals as rightfully British. So they could seize an American ship in their eyes and take all the Irish and all the Scots and all the English and off and sail away. And in the lead up to 1812, there were several incidents where British ships stopped American merchants, even American warships, and pressed their sailors on board. So understandably, this really, really annoyed the American government. We're trying to establish themselves as you know, an independent country. And at the same time, there are many uh, what are called war hawks in America who kind of believe that the Revolutionary War hadn't yet ended. The reason being is that Canada, where I am now, was still under British rule. Uh, the French in Quebec, the loyalists of um, Upper Canada, um, the New Englanders in Nova Scotia were not part of the American Republic. So these two big voices were calling for an American intervention in, uh, against the British. So in May 1812, President, President Madison asked Congress to declare war with the goal of stopping impressment and seizing these colonies and put them rightfully, as they saw it, under American power. Um, some in the Royal Navy are over the moon, aren't they? They're really looking forward to it because they're... they're there's very little naval activity by this point in the Napoleonic Wars, isn't there? So it's something for them to do. Yeah, well, the last major battle had been Trafalgar. And indeed, most of the, the histories you read of this period of the Royal Navy typically end at Trafalgar. There's, little, there's very little that there's, there's stuff that happens after Trafalgar, but it's not very flashy. Uh, it's landing amphibious operations. It's convoying, it's patrolling. Uh, and because of the impact of Trafalgar, the French Navy is obliterated, the Spanish Navy is obliterated, and it takes time for those forces to be built back up. And then, of course, in 1809, the Spanish switch sides. They're now uh, British allies. The French don't really want to go back out to sea unless they have to, because they, they know from bitter experience what happens if they get into battle with the British. They're bidding their time, uh, Napoleon wants them to bid their time, for when they'll be most useful. So with few ships out there to actually fight, a lot of Royal Navy captains are frankly bored. They have very little opportunity to make a name for themselves or to distinguish themselves, which is really important for a naval career. So when America declares war, many officers are thinking, okay, great. Uh, America has a small Navy, but they have a few ships. They're pretty good. So we all have a chance, maybe a few months of really intense action, win some victories, lots of glory, and then we'll go back to the monotony of blockades and conflict. Right, before we start, people have probably heard of a frigate, but just explain to us the difference between that and a super frigate. Okay, so a frigate is, um, well, it's a small warship. It has a single deck of uh, guns. So these were the, the, the scouts or the lead, like, raiders of the fleet, typically fast, maneuverable, usually around 28 to 40-ish guns. And they become some of the most popular ships to command in this period. Uh, you had more freedom. You had more uh, potential for uh, getting prize money, getting into battle. 
in the 1790s, uh, the French experiment with a larger version of the frigate. They start building larger ones, they have bigger hulls, and they put bigger guns on board. So before this, the standard sort of frigate main battery or guns that were called 12 pounders or 18 pounders. So they fired shot that weighed either 12 pounds or 18 pounds. Now is the standard. Uh, the French experimented with the larger frigates and they put on board 24 pounder guns. So these were usually, it used to only be on board the large ship of the lines of a renowned foreign blower, for example. Yeah, the, uh, these frigates initially sort of started to alarm everyone else. Um, you think of the naval arms race of before World War One. The, the British and Spanish heard that these French are building these large frigates and were worried about, you know, their impact. So they start building their own. The British build their own large frigates with 24-pounder guns, and they do what's called cutting down. So they take old chips of the line, too old to really use, cut off the top, and they turn them into big frigates. So indefatigable, horn blowers, first ship. That's a, a rising frigate. Now, as this goes on, um, there are dozens of battles between these frigates, and the British start to realize that they don't really need to worry about the French uh, heavy frigates. Their normal frigates with 18-pounder guns typically can defeat the French frigates. And so by 1803, when a brief period of peace resumes back into war, the British actually mothball their heavy frigates and wait because they don't, they don't need them. They're too expensive. They take many more men to manage the guns, and they rely on their smaller frigates. And they're so they... Because they know by experience, they will they can win against their odds. They don't see the need to invest in these larger ships. Um, I will just mention one other thing too. That's okay. Because mm-hmm. uh, when the war starts, um, one important thing to recognize is the British are like, the foremost global power in the world. They have an immense navy, and the Americans, by contrast, their navy is only about a decade old, maybe two decades. They have, at most, 25 ships in total. So right from the start, no one's expecting anything really to happen at sea. They are expecting that the American army will overrun Canada on land and quickly take it. In actuality, the opposite happens. Uh, The small British-Canadian force in Canada managed to repel the American invasions. And that small American fleet, over the course of the first year of the war, fights five battles of the British, five single-ship actions, one ship on each side. All five are American victories. Tell us where it all goes wrong, and what's the difference between how these losses are seen at the time and how we interpret them now? Yeah, so it goes wrong because the British, being overconfident, they're, they're used to fighting the French Navy, which suffered huge losses at the beginning of this period with the French Revolution. Most of the officers were killed or fled into exile. And that... that uh, had a huge morale impact on the Navy, a huge leadership impact on the French Navy. So the British aren't really used to fighting a proper, well-trained naval force. And the Americans, even though they have a very small Navy, it is well-trained. So the, the first battle that occurs is between um, a small British sloop and a American frigate. So it's not an even fight, and it's an American victory. You know, it's always surprised by it. But next, a British frigate called HMS Guerriere, uh, so 38-gun frigate, 18-pounder guns, encounters USS Constitution. So it's 
Uh, still around today. It's uh, America's oldest commissioned warship, second only to victory in terms of commissioned warships still around. Uh, the Constitution is a heavy frigate. It's rated as a 44-gun frigate, but it carries effectively 54 guns. And Guerriere is smashed to pieces over the course of a couple hours. Uh, her rigging is shattered, the ship is blown apart, and the ship's forces surrender. And then the battles that follow, the same thing happens. These larger American frigates smash their enemies to pieces. Now, the historiography of these actions has been pretty consistent. So American sources tend to view them as you know, spectacular victories against this mighty naval power. The British tend to view them as inconsequential. You know, the consensus today among British and Canadian historians is, well, you know, there weren't really even fights. These heavy American frigates had 50% of the fought, 50% more firepower than their British counterparts. So the fact that we lost isn't that big a deal. At the time, however, that couldn't have been inferred from the case. And this is when I discovered this topic, because I was reading the court-martial defense of one of these defeated officers. Uh, his name was James DeCray, the captain of HMS Guerriere. And he was describing uh, the battle in his court-martial, defending the loss. And then he, he told the court that, notwithstanding the unlucky issue of the affair, such confidence have I in the exertions of the officers and men who belong to Guerriere, I am so aware that the success of my opponent was owing to fortune, so to luck, that is my earnest wish and would be the happiest period of my life to be once more opposed to the Constitution with them under, them under my command and afforded a similar force to the Guerriere. And the court-martial verdict itself bases the same thing. They say, no, this, this battle was lost because the enemy had good luck. We could still have won this. And at the end of 1812, the court-martial saying the same thing. We had every chance. We had every chance to beat these guys, but we came out short. So it's that contrast. The historians seem to agree that well, Brenna, it's it's all about numbers. It's all about the weight of guns. And for the officers involved, it doesn't seem to be the case. Talk to us about the serving officers. I mean, the admirals, admiralty, and the public and their different reactions to these losses. Yeah. So um, these three groups had a very different reaction to these losses. Now, they all agreed that they were shocking. Like, th- this was front-page news in Halifax and in London and in Edinburgh, Belfast, across the British Empire, effectively. Um, for officers of the Royal Navy, they, they, were, they were profoundly shocked, and that drove them into uh, an urge for revenge. Immediately, captains started talking about uh, how are we going to find these circuits again and bring them to action, to defeat them? And they were, they were consistent. They seemed to agree with uh, the Crez that, you know, we don't, we can take them on our own. Our standard 38-gun frigate with 18-pounder guns can find Constitution and her two sister ships, and we can defeat them. The admirals, on the other hand, were a little more wary because they, they had a war to worry about, and they didn't want, you know, constant defeats uh, at the hands of your ships. So they start to give orders to the fleet saying, you know, try to stay away from these big ships like you're on your own. We don't want to risk any more fights. Stay away from them. And there's a series of orders throughout 1813 that progressively get more and more strict, resulting in one that finally says, no frigate is allowed to fight these on their own in any situation. So for the admirals, do definitely see these big frigates as a threat. 
in a way that the, the serving officer don't seem to do so. Uh, one captain wrote, um, essentially saying, you know, we, people have been talking about the superior weight of metals, the weight of the guns on these ships. And he basically says, yeah, it's, that's nonsense. It's all about how good the crews are. Um, another oh, uh, another uh, lieutenant on board a ship serving in North America, he says that, you know, he, we kind of have to take the risk and guard what? Um, and he says, without some risk, some dash, very little will ever be done in the Navy. Prudence is, has never yet answered. Even if you fail, the attempt will gain you the applause of Englishmen. And he writes in, in a diary that the... His standard frigate, his frigate was um, uh, the Nymph at 38 guns, and he writes of it in the same fashion he does Constitution. He sees very little difference there. And he's very frustrated with how the admirals have been responding. He's very frustrated with the commander-in-chief of his squadron in particular, Sir John Warren. And he describes him as weak and ineffectual, and he writes a scathing attack in his diary. But she can only be glad never actually saw the light of day until centuries later. Now, among the, the public, you know, the, the very few in, in the public really knew what, you know, a frigate was. They didn't know what a heavy frigate was. And so this caused a great deal of shock because after two decades of being told by the press and by the Navy, yeah, like the Royal Navy is invincible. We, we win all the time. Now we're, they're being told that they're losing and they lose five battles in a row, and there's no victories to show for it. And so different papers are trying to come to, trying to find different ways to explain the losses. Um, in Halifax, the papers are trying to argue that because the Americans are essentially Englishmen, that that kind of explains what's going on. They're not quite sure what's, what's happening. In Britain... Uh, this panic gets to a point where some papers are putting things like saying, you know, the spell of invincibility of the Royal Navy has been shattered. Like, we've lost whatever spirit we've had. Something's gone wrong. People stand up in the House of Commons uh, and say essentially the same thing. You know, but we've lost our naval invincibility. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Um, talk to us about Captain Philip Broke. I love him. Talk about his reaction to the losses. Um, he talked about them in his letters to his wife and, and what he did um, because it included just outright defying orders, didn't it? 
Yeah, Captain Philip Broke, he, he's almost the protagonist of like, the first half of his book, and he is one of those figures in history that you, you wouldn't believe that he, like, you would think that's a, a fictional character. Um, so he, he'd been a naval officer for his whole life. He was a young captain. And he had been serving in North America for good, I'd say, five, six years before the war broke out. Now, before the war broke out, North America was probably the worst place you could be posted in the Royal Navy because nothing happened there. There there was no enemy ports there, no enemy shipping. Occasional privateers showed up. That's about it. And in his letter to his wife in that period, he's constantly complaining about how bored he is, how badly he wants a crack at the end. Um, And he, he writes things like, you know, I would give any French captain every ounce, like every dollar of my salary I've gotten for the last decade for a chance of fighting them. And then he hears about the Declaration of War. And he's initially very excited. And he writes to his wife and he tells her, you know, this is, this is our chance. Um, and he tells her, you know, I'll give all of our prizes, so all the merchant prizes I've captured for an American frigate to for, give me the satisfaction of beating them. Now, Broke, when the war starts, he leads out a British squadron. They're, they're hunting the American fleet. And he doesn't find them. He spends essentially first half of the war searching out this fleet and never finds them. But he does have the misfortune of have dispatching one of his ships home with dispatches. And that was Guerriere. And Guerriere was attacked by the Americans and captured on the way. So he feels a sense of regret. And the Christ tells him, Bro, you know, please go and avenge me. Go beat this ship. Then he hears about the loss of the second British frigate. And he's telling his wife that, okay, you know, this is really, this is tragic. But it means that these Americans are going to be a lot more cocky. They're going to be more um, confident. So we'll have a chance to actually catch more of them now. They're not going to run away. And then a third British frigate is taken. And he starts to show genuine sorrow. And he starts writing to his wife, you know, he's saying he's really depressed with what's going on. He really wants to come home. And, and he really strikes me as, he's, he's, he seems to be genuinely, like, genuinely in love with uh, his wife. Uh, constantly telling her that he, he wants to come home. But he tells her that he, he can't because of the, his sense of honor, the way he understands honor. He needs to do his duty as a naval officer and establish his reputation before he can come home. And throughout his entire career, that has meant action of the enemy, victorious action. So in early 1813, uh, Broke is sent under the command of Captain Thomas Cappell. Uh, he was one of Nelson's captains of Trafalgar. And they are sent to blockade Boston, so one of the principal American naval bases. And their, their job is to keep any American ships in that port, keep them from escaping. Now inside, there's a handful of frigates. Um, two of them are ready for sea. Uh, USS President, so a sister ship of Constitution, so a heavy frigate, and a smaller frigate. And they're opposed by Kappa Squadron, which is you know pretty big. It's got two ships of the lines, two massive ships, which a heavy frigate wouldn't dream of trying to fight. Be vastly uneven fight, as well as uh, two or three frigates. And so Kappa and Broke, they're both pretty ambitious, and they know that if they stay there, the Americans will never come out. And it'll be, you know, however many years it is waiting and blockading. So they come up with a plan. They're going to tempt the Americans out. And they're going to do that by offering them essentially a fair fight. 
So Kappel uh, takes most of the ships and he sails as far away as Cape Sable, Nova Scotia, which is beyond line of sight, beyond uh, earshot of Boston. He leaves Broke with his ship HMS Shannon and one other frigate off the port. And their job is to attempt them out and fight these two ships and take them and avenge the losses of the last year. They're all set to do this. Ships leave, and they're waiting. And the American Commodore in the port, Commodore Rogers, he sees what's going on. He can easily see outside the port. And he thinks, okay, right, I'm just going to escape. And he escapes. He slips right past him. Because Boston is a massive port. You can't really watch it with two ships. And it takes the British a about a week to realize what's happened. At which point, the entire like, Atlantic world panics. Uh, news of, this, of these two escape ships reaches London, and London starts freaking out. Uh, the Irish station of the Royal Navy starts sending the ships out to patrol to watch for these ships. Uh, as far away as uh, ships in South Africa are on alert. Because these big American frigates had become such a a boogeyman, so terrifying. And quickly, the Arab, he starts asking, okay, what went wrong? Why did they escape? And they, they could come to the conclusion that, well, Kappel let them out. And it could very well could have led to just, like, Kappel and Broke's careers being ruined. Because they had essentially violated orders. They had been issued orders to watch that port, keep them getting out, and not to engage those ships one-on-one. And Broke had uh, tried to do that very same thing. So Vin Kappel is dispatched to look for those ships. And he leaves Broke with his two frigates off the port. Now we're watching one frigate that was under construction, that was under repair in, uh, in the port called USS Chesapeake. Uh, by June, that's, she's now ready for sea. So Broke has to decide what to do. Because he's been off Boston for some time. They're running low on stores, low on water. And he decides he's going to send his companion ship home. And he's going to stay there with Shannon. And this time, he's going to directly challenge the American ships. He's do the exact same thing again. It failed last time, but second time, second time. So he sends a written challenge in uh, shore. So a letter to the American captain. His name was uh, Captain Lawrence, uh, commander of USS Chesapeake. And, and he, he says, you know, I see your ship's now ready for sea. So I request you will do me the favor to meet the Shannon with her, ship the ship, and try the fortune of our respective flags. So he's, he's sending a letter ashore asking, come on, let, let's have a duel, let's have a fight. You know, he tells her, he tells them, you choose where, you choose whatever spot you want, we'll go there, we'll have our fight, one-on-one. If any British ships show up, I promise but I will warn you, and you can go back inside. It's a, it's a remarkable, it's almost like asking someone to a duel, challenging someone to a duel. But in this case, it is you know, massive frigates. Now, Chesapeake was was not one of Constitution's sister ships. She was essentially um, a 30-gun frigate like HMS Shannon. They were pretty much evenly matched. And Lawrence was exactly the right person to challenge because he was driven by his own sense of glory. He won a smaller action earlier in the year. Uh, his, his sloop had taken another, but he felt cheated because he had been given command of what is what was seen as one of the worst frigates in the Navy. 
Chesapeake was smaller, he had really wanted Constitution you know, or President, one of the big ships that had won one distinction so far. So when he saw the single British frigate alone, he thinks, here's my chance. I'm going to go take that ship, and I'll be just as famous as the captain of Constitution. So as this Broke's letters don't being taken ashore, uh, Lawrence sets sail anyway. He doesn't even get the letter. And he decides to go and engage this frigate. And the two frigates bear down within sight of uh, Boston Lighthouse, so not very far from the shore. Uh, dozens of merchants and people of Boston society you know, take to their little boats and they go and they wait and they go to watch what they think is going to be another great victory. They've heard all about these great victories so far. And in, 11, in the course of 11 minutes, Shannon smashes Chesapeake to pieces. Uh, Chesapeake, uh, her wheels smashed, smashed, so she loses the ability to maneuver. She's pulled into the wind. She's trapped. And Broke leads a charge on board the enemy frigate. So his men rush the deck. Lawrence is badly wounded. And so is Broke in the fight. But the British managed to drive the Americans below deck. And they've won. The first British victory of the conflict. You know, emotions would have been racing aboard the ship as they're trying to subdue the Americans. And her first lieutenant, uh, George Watt, rushes to the stern. Because he's going to end this battle once and for all. The universal sign of his time of surrender aboard ship was to strike your colors, to haul down uh, your flag and admit defeat. So as the Americans were essentially driven from the deck of their own frigate, Watt goes to, to do a job for them. He starts to haul down the American flag. And that moment is the epitome of his career because at this time, promotion is hard to come by in the Royal Navy. You know, they're... There are twice as many officers as there are ships. So you need to establish your reputation at this time, um, particularly as it appears that peace might be soon, soon coming, at least going to be uh, mothballed. So this, this moment is set to make George's career, and he hauls down this flag, and he goes to raise it back up with a British flag flying on top of it, which is a sign of uh, a prize. But in the confusion, you know, the battle's still going on, smoke is everywhere. The British-American flag, of course, are the same colors. So he initially starts raising the tattered American flag first. He quickly realizes the mistake, and they go and hold it, pull it down again. But a gunner on board Shannon, just floating right on, right beside, sees an American flag go back up and thinks that, well, the Americans are trying to re-royce re- re- the flag. And so they fire one of her guns into the stern of his ship. And everyone in the stern there is flattened by the attack. And George Watt is killed. So in, the, in that moment of victory, is just wiped out. Broke, meanwhile, who's wounded in the charge, he's losing consciousness. And he remains he, he awake just long enough to see his flag uh, raise on the enemy ship. To, to see victory. I mean, he goes unconscious. And it was a Nova Scotian officer, Lieutenant Provo Wallace, who's the son of a Halifax dockyard clerk, served on Shannon for some years. He's left in command, and he sails both ships into Halifax. 
Uh, it was a Sunday morning uh, of a town of about 5,000, pretty much all in church, uh, Sunday prayers. And then a man runs in to one of the churches, and he shouts, uh, something about, you know, the harbor, very excitedly. And pretty soon the entire town is flocked to the beaches of Halifax as these two ships sail in. It's jubilant. And it begins weeks of celebrations in Halifax. Uh, people, you know, praise broke, they shower them with honors. They're, they're, they're excited that they finally have this, what they see as, as evidence that they weren't really um, inferior to the Americans. And then Broke goes home. And the same thing happens in Britain. You know, he is showered of honors. Uh, the Duke of Wellington later writes that, you know, that battle was like the, the epitome of the war, was like the greatest moment of that conflict. And most of the British uh, narratives of this war tend to end there, tend to end with HMS Shannon, uh, Shannon and her victory. But the war continues. And it doesn't continue necessarily in a great way for the British. They win a few more battles. What's about HMS Epervier? Um, this is a single ship action where the British lost, um, and it was spectacular incompetence, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. So Epervier was one of the examples of uh, the losses that they suffered after Shannon Chesapeake. There were several of them. Epervier was a small ship, a sloop, um, commanded by Richard Wales. So Wales was pretty young. He was the nephew of one of Britain's senior admirals, Admiral Warren. So he had pretty good connections. But he was not a good captain. So he had been commander of Pervier for about a year. In that time, Pervier had um, been struck by lightning, lightning in Halifax, which caused her to sink. Um, so she was underwater for a couple weeks. She was eventually raised and was fine. It wasn't That wasn't his fault. But when she was underwater... The fastenings for all of her guns have essentially rusted, and they're very brittle. So when she found herself opposed to an American sloop, uh, just off the coast of Nova Scotia, not long after, these guns kept breaking loose when they were fired. So they, as the British had to deal with, you know, the enemy gunfire of, you know, solid shot, of grape shot, you know, smashing through the deck, smashing through the, the bulwarks, they also deal with their guns literally sliding across the deck because they, they the fastings were just rusted. And if he had bothered to practice the, the guns beforehand, if he bothered to drill the guns, well, perhaps it wouldn't have happened. He would have realized that the guns weren't actually properly fastened anymore. But in the time that he commanded a ship, he'd only ever fired one gun in practice. So his crew weren't properly trained. The guns were deficient. This ship was quickly defeated, quickly taken. And the court-martial that followed picked up on this. They quickly realized what would happen. They realized that these guns were deficient. They read the accounts. So they questioned the officers extensively on why this was. And the officers started to turn around and blame their men. You know, the captain, the master, the first lieutenant. They all said, yeah, well, our men, you know, they're weak. They're not really good sailors. You know, they, they didn't know how to fight. Which... It does seem to ignore the fact that as the officers are responsible for training those men, and they were not doing their job. So Pervy was lost to utter incompetence. But, and I was surprised by this, Captain Wales was not blamed for that at all. He was acquitted honorably, 
uh, and he continued on for a few years in the Navy, uh, commanded a few more ships, despite the pretty stark evidence that he was not fit to command. How officers punished and acquitted for these losses, with one exception, only one officer from any of the defeats in the War of 1812 actually dismissed from service? Yeah, so uh, after whenever any ship was lost in the Royal Navy, in this case in most naval forces, a court-martial was held, so a, a military court, to determine, you know, what happened, uh, why a ship was lost, and if is, is anyone to blame for what happened. So um, in each case, the officers who lost their ships were acquitted. Um, every court-martial determined that each officer had done their utmost to defend their ship, and so they deserved acquittal, with the exception of one named Andrew Duncan, who displayed allegedly coward, cowardice in the, in the action, so he was dismissed. So everyone was basically let off. But most never actually served at sea again. Uh, Wales did manage to serve at sea again, but he had, you know, his uncle was a senior admiral. He didn't serve very long. Uh, most of the lieutenants of these actions, effectively their careers ended the day their ships were, were taken. Now, even in the cases like uh, Captain Wales, when the poor state of the gunnery or training was, you know, closely scrutinized, the officers were let, let off. One of the earlier battles, so the battle between USS United States and USS, or HMS Macedonian, John Carden had defended his that conduct in the battle um, pretty well, pretty profoundly, but the court were uh, hesitant to, to believe them. And they got really, uh, they really fixated on the tactics and the maneuvering of a battle. During that action, John Carden had done what is uh, controlling the weather gauge. So if anyone um, you know, is a sailor, you know, you can't sail directly into the wind. You have to sail away from it. And if you are to windward of someone, so you are between the wind and someone else, you have a greater degree of control. You have more freedom to move. So it was generally seen as a preferred um, state to be in when fighting. Now, John Carden tried to do this, but didn't do it very well. And he actually had a great deal of uh, difficulty in trying to close the gap in his two ships. Now, because his opponent, the United States, had, you know, the 24-pounder guns, so they're bigger, they could fire at longer ranges, did more damage. This caused uh, Mesodonia to suffer a lot of damage during that action as the distance slowly closed. And the court-martial really hammered him on it. And they said, you know, if you had only closed the gap earlier, you might have won. And they say that in the verdict. But then they say, well, despite that, your conduct was honorable during the battle, and so you are acquitted. Welcome back into the service. But John Carden never went to sea again. His career was over, like many of his fellows. They found a way to make them all pay, didn't they? Um Thank you so much for coming on to give us um, sort of a bridge in our knowledge from that Nelsonian time of just constant victory um, into what followed. It's something I had never considered before. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the 
it, it, it was it's definitely a stark, even for me, because I had you know, read much of his naval history, and I had kind of, as I grew up, you know, being a you know Anglo Canadian, I had often wondered, you know, I thought about these American victories in the 1812, and I had sort of come to the conclusion that historians had, and I thought, well, they weren't really fair battles, so there's no real shame. And then th- this material really shows that our understanding of the past in this case doesn't actually uh, match with how those officers fought. Once again, thank you so much for coming on to share that with us. Join us down the pub where after the insanity of last week with history's greatest sexcapade, we tone it down only marginally to look for history's most scandalous woman. Haven't really put an exact definition on scandalous, so it'll be interesting to see what comes up, so don't miss that. And join us on Monday when Gareth Davis will be with us to talk all about the Battle of Kursk, so don't miss out on that one. We are now on YouTube. We are posting all of our new episodes on there and we have our own channel and we are gradually posting all of the back episodes because we have been made aware of the fact that you can only find the last hundred on some platforms. So you can go and listen to your heart's content and laugh at the cartoons and have a great time. So do go over there and subscribe. Don't forget, you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus, and we would really appreciate it, as we would love to do so. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com.